Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on the grid with Mr. Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Mr. Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us in RBP's virtual cupboards today is none other than the excellent Jude Rogers. Welcome, Jude. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I was going to ask you, we already had the conversation about where you are in Wales. You're, you're live from Abergavenny, food capital of, oh, yeah. of the Western world. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll. In beautiful Wales. We'll be talking a bit later about Prince's Sign of the Times and also about the week's new audio interview with Sonic Youth. But right now, we want to hear about your stellar career as a writer, Jude. Where did it all begin for you? What was your way into music? My way into music, oh, I was always into music, always, from a very traditional Welsh family. So the music was more chapel and pub. (laughs) (laughs) Since I was little, I was just obsessed. Um, My dad was a big music fan. He died when I was quite little, and I kind of was a bit obsessed with his tapes and as I grew up. My career as a music journalist began at a local paper in Llanelli, which I can say and many people can't. <laughs> Do you want us all to have a trot? No! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't end up with spit all over the stream. <laughs> yeah, that's not advisable, especially in these days. <laughs> no, quite! <laughs> yeah, tongue behind your teeth. That's what the tip for Llanelli. Okay. So um, yeah, basically my job there, I did work experience, my job was to collect the charts from Woolworths on a Saturday morning and type it up. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Which was that's my the start. Way in, and, isn't it? You know, which sounds very mundane, but God, it was exciting. And I'd then go to the bargain bin and spend money I'd earned on all sorts. Got a, you know, the things that have started off in Woolworths and Clenetley, my love of synth pop. I bought a cheap knockoff early 80s synth pop compilation, which is where I first heard, oh God, the teardrop explodes and... Who weren't strictly synth pop, but kind of bits of craft work, that kind of stuff. Yaz, Yazoo, those sorts exactly. of things. Yeah. And yeah, so I did that for a while. Um, went to university, kind of slipped off it for, for a while because I went to quite a fancy university. I went to Oxford and everybody was much better than me and I ran away from journalism and I was scared. And President and, of the union, weren't you? I was president of the students' union of my college, which is not the same as being the Oxford union. I, I hid away from the Tufts. I was a... <laughs> Yeah, I was scared of tops. Wise. Yeah, but after a succession of really terrible jobs after university, I started a fanzine with a guy called Matt Haynes, who was one of the co-founders of Sarah Records, who I just knew from gigs. You know, indie was one, indie pop was one of the things I liked, but I liked lots of other stuff. And we just stuck on this idea of doing a fanzine about London, and I sent a copy in in early 2003 to this brand-new entertainment magazine called Word, and they featured it, and I met in the Angel Pub near the Astoria, got all these names from the past, in central London in May or June 2003, Mark Ellen and David Hepworth, who interviewed me. That's the first encounter we had about my fanzine. And we just hit it off, and they said, you know, we really want some more, you know, you should try and write something for us. Paul Denoyer, the reviews editor Word, was the guy who basically was instrumental, though, in bringing me in. He kind of gave me reviews and about three or four months later after begging them to save me from the terrible job I was in at the time they took me on as a basically a you know jiffy bag opener tea maker <laughs> um, and very grand that title. was it I was just really keen to write and suddenly you know I was in this office with Mark Toss. Ellen Toss. David Hepworth Toss. <laughs> 
Oh, but for once off. Oh, Mark is just amazing. Mark is just. I, yeah. he, I, he was entertaining man I think yeah. I've ever been in the room with. But excitingly for me, Mark and Dave were slightly above my generation. Andrew Harrison was the features editor who'd edited Select in the 90s, which was my yeah. Bible. It was so exciting. And, yeah, Paul Denoyer, who is one of the greatest writers. Yeah, so I was in the room with all these people and what an education I had. It was a small room, wasn't it? I mean, I've seen mm. pictures of the word room. It's a fairly small room. Yeah. Slightly larger than the Roxback Pages cupboard, but, <laughs> but still small. You wouldn't be able to all work in there right now, would you? No. But clearly it was a hive of eccentric creativity. It was fantastic. I was next to the reviews cupboard, which was constantly toppling, full of, you know, CDs, <laughs> DVDs promotional things, James Yorkston cider. I remember a lot of James Yorkston cider at one point. <laughs> Pines of chromalins. But yeah, I kind of it was a small team, so I learned a lot. You know, I was de facto production editor for a while. I had to learn InDesign pretty quickly. I would you know did photo research. I remember finding the Daily Mirror photo archive and finding amazing stuff that we could get there quite cheaply from the yeah, mag yeah, and yeah. amazing old forgotten pictures of the sex pistols and stuff like that. But yeah. it was great because what was really great about Word is they were really keen on getting fresh voices in and different perspectives. And Paul was especially great because you know, early on he said to me, if some of my first reviews, he said, there are four Brian Eno reissues coming out, the four, first four Brian Eno albums. I want you to do 1,200 words. And I was like going, well, I know the first ambient album really well. I love it, but I don't know these. And he said, that's why I want you to do it, <laughs> because you're right. interested in music like this. And I don't want to read somebody who's written about it 200 times on as an interview, you know, whatever. You got me to do Paul Simon's complete solo back catalogue really early on. You know, it was amazing. You know, it was it was I was given such great opportunities. And then slowly the interviews started to come in as well. What were the first that you did, Jude? Well, the first that I did actually was before I started work there. It was bank holiday, August bank holiday in 2003, and obviously no one was around. I had a panicky phone call from Andrew Harrison, who I'd never spoken to before, saying, can you get to Leicester? We know we don't know you very well, but do you want to go to Leicester to the travel lodge to interview Billy Bragg? (laughs) (laughs) And obviously I said, yes, but this is the next day. And, you know, I was there going, I don't know what to do. Do And I had to. I was in Swansea with my mum. We went to Argos to look at dictaphones, I remember. You know, I was so completely clueless. My uncle lived very near Leicester, so I ended up going to Leicester and my uncle dropping me off at the Travelodge. He was in the Travelodge because he was between Reading and Leeds, Billy Bragg. That's where he'd stopped in between the legs of Reading and Leeds. He was such a joy, though. You know, what a lucky person to have for a first interview. And I remember him giving me kind of career advice. (laughs) You know, saying, you know, don't give up your job. You know, keep trying to build up a freelance career and keep at it. But I loved the interview. And I think that was the thing that got me in, really. Mm -hmm. I interviewed Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics after that. That didn't go as well. (laughs) (laughs) Funnily enough. (laughs) Yeah, not not, not too many zingers on the page from him. I'm sure he's very nice, but it was not a particularly great day for, okay. for Kelly. So the Travel Lodge in Leicester, not not quite yeah. the Sunset Marquee in West Hollywood, but I imagine that you have interviewed many other luminaries in slightly more prestigious surroundings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, no, I, no reflection on Leicester's Travel Lodge, no. by the way. It may be one of the finest Travel Lodges in the country for all I know. <laughs> Starting off as a music journalist in 2003, I did miss a lot of the, I missed the glory years, but I did still get a few amazing press trips. I went to East Berlin to 
see Portishead launch their third record. My first international job was the Arcade Fire in Vancouver. I was 27. I'd never flown by myself before. There was no publicist coming along. It was was just me. I couldn't get over how exciting it was. I spent three days with them out there, interviewed all the members of the band. Fantastic. You know, downtown in Vancouver, that was amazing. I still have the AAA pass that I had from that ice hockey stadium hanging on the back of my office door at home. (laughs) I've always had it, you know. You don't have that with you, do you? I don't, but I can show you a picture later. I've I've got a son who's six and kind of even he knows about it now because he's trying to wear it around his neck. I'm like, don't, that's my precious thing. Has he taken it into school for a show and show and tell? tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he knows my job is quite strange. So among the pieces that were featuring three pieces on the homepage by you this week, one of them is an interview you did with Adele, mm. who obviously is like the biggest star on the planet. So that must have been, I mean, she wasn't the biggest star on the planet at that point, but she was about to become the yeah. biggest star on the planet. So you catch her at quite an interesting moment. For the wonderfully named The Gentlewoman mm. magazine. <laughs> Does that still exist? Does that still exist? Yeah, yeah. It's a really great magazine. Okay. It's kind of, you know, very high-end, quarterly Yes. They've got some, you know, they had Beyonce in the cover five years ago when nobody else could. It's kind of, it's got a real cachet. And this was like third issue. It was very early on, this one. Okay. Okay. Well, it's, a, it's a great piece that just really sort of captures what's, you know, endearing and, and sort of authentic about Adele. I mean, we're not going to have a long conversation about Adele. I am, I'm a sort of, almost like a reluctant fan. I didn't want to, in fact, I reviewed her first album for Uncut and I thought it was like, I thought it was a bit phony and a bit sort of sub Amy Winehouse. And then when the second one came out, I, I, I had to just sort of admit defeat and say, do you know what, this, this girl can really sing mm. and write. And I, I thought it was pretty damn good. I mean, you're a fan, I see. Yeah, I've kind of gone or up and down with her over the years. Um, first record, I remember her first single, Hometown Glory, I thought was great. Mm. Mm. You know, and um, I thought that was really great. The first album, I thought had some moments. Yeah. The thing I think is still the best thing she's ever done is Rolling in the Deep, the first track yes. of 21. Yes. I really wish she would do you know, the more kind of full-on, you know, kind of that southern blues, but it's rollicking and it's... She's done too many ballads for my liking. I agree, actually. I think that is her... That is my favourite record of hers by quite a distance, actually. It's got a lot more energy than anything else. Yeah. I mean, my, my disappointment with her is... I mean, I'd never really loved much of her music at all. I like the fact that she was quite a large woman at a time when it seemed for, to be a woman's star, you had to be physically sort of perfect or some misogynistic notion of perfection. But then she started moaning about paying tax... And that pissed me off. She she did apologise for that. I think there was some, I can't remember exactly, but I think that was slightly misquoted from, or brought out. She, mm. she, she, she did come back on that. I know I remember being annoyed at the time. That was kind right. of just, I think the tabloids did the classic, you know, pull a quote out. What, yeah, it's funny you're saying about, you know, the way she was, you know, I remember going to the photo studio that day and she's having her nails done and her eyelashes done and still chatting in this amazing, she's got a fantastic Tottenham accent. And she's incredibly beautiful. And you should make these amazing eyes and yeah. you know, this lovely manner. 
about her, you know, perfect interviewee, kind of, you know, in terms of photos and everything, you know, and words. But, you know, nobody would put her on a magazine cover, even though she had one, yeah. she's got this incredible photogenic face. And the gentlewoman were the first magazine to put her on the cover. So this was like, we did the interview in December. 21 came out, I think, in January. You know, by February, it was world gobbling. And I think this cover came out in yeah. February. And I think later that year, Vogue put her on the cover, but very close up on her face. No, not, not her body. Right. But in this picture, she's, she's just kind of looking out the window, slightly, you know, in a slightly pissed off teen way with a fang. <laughs> Which, yes. You know, you, only a high end kind of magazine could do something with a cigarette as well, I think in that sense but it was quite a you know it's a big cover for them it sold really well that's great i mean i'm slightly dismayed that she's apparently has been losing oh. weight recently which may maybe is a rational thing to do but i i just i did like the fact that you know she, uh, she was a large woman in the industry sort of very skinny women yeah. a lot of women, no, thought, women in a skinny world and she didn't give yeah. a shit yeah. i do yeah. think that all the attention paid to it though is like i mean it's who you know who cares it's her business it at the end of the much. day like it just yeah. doesn't i mean I don't know. I yeah. think what struck, what, what kind of people liked about her, and I think people buy her records because of this, is that she's, you know, she's like somebody you really want to live next door to, you really want to go to the pub with. And she was one of those first singers that, you know, the 2010s has been full of people like that ever since, you know, whether they be particularly, you know, great music or not, you know, the your Ed Sheeran, Julius Capaldi's, you know. You'd have a lot, no, maybe not Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I don't know, I've never met him. You know, Lewis Capaldi, I don't really care for his music, but you know, he's very entertaining. You know, there's. He's very funny, actually. Yeah, very funny. There's that kind of personality that does come through a bit in the record. Her last record, I just thought too many ballads, but there's this, it was, you know, about kind of being 25 and feeling sad for your youth, and people were, you know, that was a bit weird. But then you think, you know, Jackson Brown was doing that when he was 16. You know, it's a kind of classic trope, isn't it? Feeling really old when you're 25, and then you get to 42, and you think, "Oh, it's yes. all right, actually." <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a there's a lot of, there's some, some great sentences in this piece you wrote, and oh, love it. That's great. Washing is gone off. <laughs> to me. Um, you're talking about she, she has never been edgy. Early in her career, she told one newspaper she was a cool kid in the outside world, but would sneak home to listen to ballads. <laughs> as if it was a sort of terrible guilty secret yeah. but she is a great ballad singer and your piece talks about everything like the brit school obviously about the uh the fact she got her heart broken and that's what essentially lies behind the, the 21 album mm. and also talks about her touring in america and sitting at the front of the tour bus listening to country music mm. with steve earl she was introduced by the bus driver was was playing country music so maybe we can expect a country album oh, from that would her be amazing she's a massive Beth Midler fan and I think you know she mentioned that yeah. back then and that really figures and it could have works that she's become this massive star in America as well she you know she's a mum pleasing artist you know in kind of a sense my my mum liked her music and yeah I think there's something really touching about her music you know I think I similarly would have kind of I had my worries earlier on but kind of I don't think she is phony I think it's I really want to hear some more stuff from her. And I want to hear that country record, actually. I wanted to hear, or some return to a rave diva or something. (laughs) (laughs) I want a bit of welly. I like a bit of welly from Adele. So 
talk about her signing to XL recordings. I think that was such a kind of a good fit for her. Mm. Unlikely label in a sense to come after since they had like Radiohead, White Stripes and so forth. But actually, I think they've, I don't know whether it is fair to say, but uh, it seems to me they've managed her career brilliantly. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, she's... You know, it's very, it's very simple what she does, but it's just done with great authority, you know. I'm sure the next album will be called Whatever Age She Is Then. <laughs> but why not? I mean, If it's you know, not, I'll be disappointed, to be honest. Yeah. I think everyone yeah, will. Completely. I think it's just become a sort of national institution now. Adele makes her albums after her own. Ages oh, God, she's going to wait until she's 33, though, hasn't she? Because that will feel, you know, <laughs> yes. vinyl, yes. you know. And she's going to have to do one when she's 64. Well, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and 45, of course. 45. XL, if you're listening, we're, just, we're, we're offering this. Marketing uh, campaign, totally. Free of charge. Actually, 45, um, 45 could be an EP, couldn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that might be when she goes back to the sort of, you know, more, more rolling in the deep style like a northern yeah. soul 45 like oh yeah <laughs> deep. I, I put it on the other day when we were talking about doing this and i thought god it's such a great record it's Fantastic. so great yeah. it's kind of i think it's up there with you know those amy winehouse records that just kind of blow your mind you know it was a funny time that because everybody was desperately seeking for the next you know the next amy the next amy but amy without all the troublesome bits of amy yes adele <laughs> yes. and duffy and there were lots of other people at that time where were interesting. Candy Payne was a great singer who kind of just, just kind of came and went and you know, lots of other interesting people. Mm. Talking of Amy, the second piece we're featuring is, is this interview you did with Tony Bennett in 2011. It's essentially, it's sort of life lessons from Antonio Benedetto, isn't oh it? Oh, my really? God, it's, yeah. it's, it's wonderful. What a fantastic man. But we learn in this, if we didn't know, that he himself, I mean, this is, as you point out and please I think it's like literally two weeks after Amy Winehouse died mm. is that correct yeah something like that and of course she had duetted with him in a kind of completely besotted way I mean that's in the film mm. Amy and you see how just she's so overawed mm. by working with him but it, but it is it adds resonance to the quotes of he, he had suffered a cocaine overdose himself in the 70s and then in one of his sort of pieces of, of advice that you extract is legalise drugs, but don't let them ruin you. And he says, I would have loved to have talked to Amy about this. We hit it off when we sang together. I'd love to have sat down and chat, chatted with her about what Woody Allen's manager told me. And he was talking about Lenny Bruce. I said, what did you think of Lenny Bruce? And Charles Joff said, he said one sentence that changed my life. He sinned against his talent. Mm. And in a way, I suppose that's what he would have wanted to say to Amy. You know, don't don't sin against your talent. Yeah. Do you remember that encounter with oh, Tony? Oh God, yeah. Oh, you know, be asked to interview Tony Bennett. You know, that, yeah. another thing that was so great with words. You know, they just were like launch me out to interview. You know, I don't know. I think if you're if you're a female journalist in your twenties and thirties, quite often it's just you know you're in. You know, I was going to say you interviewed Laura Marling like 10 times. Laura Marling's amazing. And I, I've loved it. Yeah. I have interviewed her a lot and she's great. But, you know, it's like, you know, you're young, you're a girl, you go off and do this. And um, we're like, right. right, Tony Bennett. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was Park Lane Hotel. I was, I think, yeah, I mentioned this in the piece, don't I? I got an autograph from my auntie Velma. She's <laughs> 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 the old lady. She's not my auntie, Welsh auntie, lived two doors down and she used to look after me when I was a little girl. She was so excited. She made her day. 
you were just sitting on this on this kind of bench in this very grand suite, and I kind of sat next to him on the bench, and it was like we're both waiting for a bus or something. <laughs> you know, he's got this he's beautiful, you know, his face, and he was talking about the stuff about Amy. You know, I remember him being very moved talking about that. Yeah. And you're sitting next to this guy who's, you know, pretty fine fettle for his age. You know, he was in his early 80s then. And I still follow his Instagram account, and he was – Brilliant pictures of him recently. Like, here's some courgette soup I've made. And he's, you know, <laughs> well in his 90s looking great. You think you I forget know. that he had this awful period when he was completely hooked on drugs and you nearly mm. didn't come out of it. And it was something quite moving sitting there with this, you know, old guy thinking, you know, that could have been her. Can you imagine Amy Winehouse would have been like if she sorted herself out and she was she yeah. carried on, you know? I think that he's someone who's reputation has actually got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. Yeah. Something about, you know, you know that there's real artistic integrity behind what he does yeah. in a way that you can't say about a lot of similar singers, singers to him, singers working in the same sort of territory. You know, mm-hmm. he, had, he, he really believes in what he does and takes a great deal of artistic care over how he performs and how he records and everything. And he's interested mm. in younger artists in a way that's not just to sell records, you know, he, yeah. you read about him talking about Lady Gaga, and that's not a natural fit when you first think about it. Yes. But, you know, she, Lady Gaga and Amy Winehouse, they're massive music fans, they really love it, and mm. they really put in the hours either, you know, in Lower East Side clubs like Lady Gaga did, or listening to records and learning jazz singing at home in this chaotic family as, you know, Amy Winehouse did, you know. And you've see, seen both of them, film footage of both of them with Tony Bennett, you can, you know, they hold him this reverence. Mm. And you can see that he's just having a whale of a time as well. He's really, you know, he's genuinely really enjoying what he's doing still, which I think is a really amazing thing to see. I I love this piece. I think it's a lovely interview and just really nice terms of phrase. What you're talking about, about the signature is, he pats my gently to make points. His New York phrasing falls on the ears like honey. The hour flies by. He pulls one of three pens from his inside pocket. The baby blue lying on his immaculate jacket matches his socks. A lovely evocative evocative piece of writing. It just sounds like a great time, a great interview. I love it. I do love that. You know, whenever I'm in an interview situation, I'm there kind of trying to record everything in my mind and I'm not one of these interviewers that can just photograph you know photograph everything and it's there I'm just kind of scribbling you know in my notebook I'm a, I'm a terrible scribbler you know kind of like blue socks blue lining don't forget that later <laughs> or, or after the interview I'll go to the loo and I'll record something into my dictaphone it's all you know very uh, <laughs> yeah I shouldn't be sharing these kind of like top secret tips and <laughs> 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 well, now everyone's going to be doing that yeah it's what makes I it come alive though isn't it and it also yeah, for me to, now to read that you know I hadn't read that piece for years until the last couple of days and yeah it was really special and I saw him singing as well. And he did a gig at the Palladium and tried to read for the Guardian around the same time. And we uh, have that on RBP too. I yeah, suppose, yeah, but, it is. It was, you know, it was. It was a five star gig, and I, and I met Anne Amant after it. Who was my first childhood hero. So it was a, <laughs> yeah. Wow! Well, what a night! Top that exactly. <laughs> I To the third piece, I just wanted to mention because this is this was a sort of late tactical substitution. We had another piece lined up, but then suddenly yesterday, Fleet Foxes sprang a new album on the world, and mm. um, so 
we're including this piece you wrote when their first album came out, which is not just about them. It's about the influence of, this is for the New Statesman, June 2008. It's a piece about really the influence of the sort of post-surfing Beach Boys on a new, not really movement, but sort of generation of American mm. groups, including Fleet Foxes and Grizzly Bear and Animal Collective. I listened to the new album last night. I have to say, on first listening, I thought it was fantastic. Mm. I really, I don't know if you've heard it yet. It's called yeah. Short. Yeah, I've listened to about half of it while preparing for another interview. But yeah, it I sounds it's, great. It sounds really, really good. And Laura Barton just did a, a wonderful yeah. piece on Robin Packnold, which is in The Guardian today. So it just seemed sort of timely. And actually just a really interesting thing that these these young guys and some girls in the in the noughties were listening to Smile and all mm. and all these extraordinary Brian Wilson masterpieces. In fact, on the new album, I believe there is a Packnold was obsessed with this thing that was on the smile box which is brian wilson just recording dozens of harmonies for don't talk put your head on my shoulder i believe and he's actually been he got permission to sample some of this for one of the tracks on the new album I do think Fleet Foxes are, you know, fairly extraordinary harmonically, mm. just some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in my life. And, and that goes for the new album as much as it did for the very first one. Were you a Beach Boys fan when you, when you wrote this piece? And did you like that first Fleet Foxes album? Yeah, I love the Beach Boys. And, you know, Good Vibrations is, is one of the songs I remember hearing as a kid and having this vivid reaction to the harmonies, and I've got to say the theremin as well, because I love a bit of theremin. <laughs> Anything weird, electronic, or whatever instruments of that period, I'm, I'm a sucker for. Bond, Martin. But I'm not a completist. They're one of these bands that I love hearing, but I haven't... No, I'm one of the person that really hates saying it's a boy thing. But um, <laughs> I, I've never met a woman who's gone completely nuts about Beach Boys. Probably Laura Barton might be one of those people, actually, because Laura loves her stuff. I did love the first Free Foxes record, I think because of that, the harmonising, there was something going on at that time. This joy of singing together seemed to be something that was starting to infect music. I wonder now, looking back, whether it was something to do with the sort of rise of, you know, psychedelic folk and that movement at that time, which is something I was really into. So that's what sort of got me into folk music in general, the kind of Green Man Festival vibe. Yes. That's basically why I live where I live now is because of that whole movement and I fell in love with Wales. But there's something about men singing together that chummed with me, I think, because, yeah, again, I'm from Wales, you know, male voice choirs, whatever. But there's something quite beautiful about it. And I love harmonies in all kinds of ways, be it, you know, I know we talk about sonic youth later, you know, huge different voices coming together. It can sound weird or crunchy and sound brilliant, but it's just so seamless with Fleet Fox. It sounds really angelic, you know, which should be a cliche, but with them, it's just like, where is this? come from it's just yes. beautiful you know white winter hymnal i know it's like the first track that everybody knew well about them but still like it, i've never played not played that and had shivers at my spine it's just it's just wonderful i think I, I became a bigger fan of grizzly bear i think in terms of as a band i think i got i think it didn't like the second fleet foxes album as much because our first one had such an impact yeah. But Grizzly Bear are one of the bands that you could tell, and I know all the members had talked about them as an influence, and 
the way they took that on in different ways. They're a fantastic group. But yeah, I, Animal I, Collective back then as well. There was something about Beach Boys harmony singing, which was beautiful, but it was slightly strange and slightly, because it felt like it came from a different stratosphere. You know, it didn't feel like it came from Earth. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it's, it's, it gave it that sort of quality that mm. the Beatles harmony singing didn't do that. Beatles harmony singing is incredible. But Beach Boys, something else, something else going on there. Well, it's sort of angelic again, isn't it? It's, there's something angelic about it. I mean, you're right about... I mean, our friend Sean O'Hagan from the High Llamas is mm. another Beach Boys fanatic. Mm. And actually, was at one point slated to produce them, which would have been interesting. Didn't oh, happen. Cool. And he, again, it's, it's, it's his obsession with harmonies. It's, it's, mm. it's absolutely just... You know, people are transfixed by it. I mean, you're, you're right. And the Beatles, are really, I think, are interesting because they are like the Everly Brothers. You can see where their sort of harmony the basis of their harmonies come from. Mm. And the Beach Boys are actually more out of barbershop quartet. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, an extra, it's an extraordinary noise. I think the fact that it's voices as well is a crucial element yeah. because, you know, harmony is one thing, and I love harmony in terms of music in general, but the fact that the voices and the way that a voice sounds compared to, say, an instrument, particularly, you know, fixed pitch instruments, where once you play a harmony, everything is in tune with itself, whereas with voices, there's that, always that slight sort of not literal warble but just that slight movement of the Mm. pitch that when you layer it on top of each other with different people's voices which all have slightly different timbres and you get this texture that is very human and really genuine in a kind Mm. of way that I think touches a lot of people I was following the eye 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 was following We could sort of segue from this into Prince because he is another master of kind of, I suppose, self-harmonising almost. <laughs> you know, the very first track on his first album is is just this a cappella thing where it's like a choir, but it's all Prince called For You. And he always did extraordinary things, harmonising with himself, especially on kind of ballads and things like that. I know he's sort of... People think of him more in terms of up-tempo music, but like on. So, why were you talking about Prince? Because they're about to release a, an expanded edition of the 1987 double album Sign of the Times, regarded by more than a few as his greatest record. Well, certainly perhaps the most diverse record. I still think it's pretty fantastic. Like as with a lot of double albums from that era, there, there are. There are sort of slightly kind of throwaway moments. It's not all it's not all brilliant the whole way through. But then that's the same with like the White Album, Exile on Main Street, you name it. I still think it's probably got some of his really greatest music on it. Were you a Prince fan in in the in that era in the eighties? I was quite scared of Prince. <laughs> I so I was you know I became aware of Prince probably around Sign of the Times actually, but I kind of basically I was a child of Smash Hit the Smash Hits you know kind of imperial phase when Barry McElhenney <laughs> was editor you know years later when I was editing Barry McElhenney at Word I was just like this is insane this is the man who invented my whole. Outlook on culture. <laughs> I've actually you know, I'm chatting to you on the phone. Anyway, kind of. Um, I think it's because Smashes used to portray him as this, you know, sex imp, 
and I was, you know, um, nine. <laughs> and it was a little bit too frightening for me. You know, I was in the kind of relative, much, well, yeah, it was relative safe space of, you know, broth or whatever. And by the time I was getting a little bit to the age where, you know, I knew I was fancying people, he was doing most beautiful girl in the world and stuff like that. By which point I was like, uh, you know, you see you're saying that, you know, I was becoming slightly more feminist in my politics. So I could have got into Prince a little, I could have acknowledged Prince's genius a bit later. I think Purple Rain was the song that, and when I first heard that properly, and I was like, one minute, this is amazing. Yeah, it was when I started becoming very aware of Prince, actually it was the Batman Prince era, which I still think is pretty Ropey. not great. Yeah, no. but sign of the times. The song kind of. Um, I remember hearing it when I was quite young and going, "Oh, so what's this about?" And you know, when I got was old enough to actually properly listen to it, you know, just the first verse, just going, "Yeah, sure. that's incredible yeah. that he came out with that statement." You know, and in '87 when AIDS was still, you know, something that kids and young people knew about through in the UK, despite you know terrifying TV commercials and scary government campaigns <laughs> i still think yeah i still think it's it is my favorite song of his sign of the time i mean I, i'm probably one of those people who probably th- thinks that the album would have been a really really great single album but you know yeah um, i would agree with you. so so the new super triple deluxe edition is perfect <laughs> for you <laughs> it's, it's, been made, it's been designed for mark pringle but, but the other, other thing is wendy and lee's are very heavily involved in it yeah. and i think that their contribution to what he was doing at that time has been really downplayed. I think a lot of the Beatlesms that they he sort of adopted around it actually came out of them. They did a lot of arranging for him. A lot of what mm. you hear sonically is about Wendy and Lisa, and, I, and yeah. I, I don't think they've ever really got the credit. And I think that after they left him, that's the beginning of his descent into a relative mediocrity. I think you could be right. I mean, interestingly, so we've included in the Prince feature an interview with Wendy and Lisa done mm-hmm. not long after they left the revolution. Mm-hmm. They do actually say that they didn't have that much to do with Sign of the Times. They were involved with... Around the World in a Day. Yeah, but obviously, they were, yeah, there are three, three or four tracks on Sign of the Times that they get yeah. like strange relationship. But some of, that, some of those date back a bit further. But I, you know, broadly, I think you're right. Whether it's to do with Wendy and Lisa leaving on, I always sort of think that the last great Prince track, it was probably Alphabet Street. I don't yeah. think they ever did anything quite as great as, like, if I was your girlfriend on this track, you got the look with, with Sheena Easton. I mean, these, these are, <laughs> that, that, I think they're fantastic. That, that, that riveted all of us because our last yes. memory of Sheena, Sheena <laughs> yeah. Easton was, you know, My Baby Takes the Morning Train and all of that sort of suburban pop. And now she's doing that. Yeah. Was... that. That very lewd song, Sugar Walls, that oh Prince wrote for her. Was that before or after Sign of the Times? I think she'd already done that. I think that Sugar was before, Walls. wasn't it? I think it was before. So she'd already kind of, in a sense, <laughs> been led astray by, by Prince. I do love the fact that, you know, you know, I was too young for Prince, basically, but kind of when I was older, finding out, you know, how he like to collaborate with people and you know he was trying to get um he was working with Mavis Staples in the mid 80s because he thought she was amazing and I'm putting out records for her and trying to you know he which you know they didn't take off you know she's kind of since you know association with Jeff Tweedy things have kind of she's got to a place where she should be but yeah it's kind of like he, he didn't really care for Cole in some ways does he you know kind of she no, that, 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 that's true, but the, the trouble with his collaborations is that they always sound like Prince records. 
they absolutely sound like Prince Records. They don't. The, the artist is collaborating with, but he doesn't get a look at. Yeah, it's that probably honest, true. Isn't it, so. Well, I mean, what everyone kind of said about, and still says about Son of the Times is, is you know, who is the real Prince? There's so many mm. different facets of Prince on this record, and in one of the contemporary reviews that we're featuring by Jim Sullivan from the Boston Globe, he says, you know, the main question here is which hat is Prince wearing? Try these on in no particular order. Social activist. Carnival cavorter, rabble rouser, dancer romancer, shake your body funkster, pop purveyor, Christian rocker, waltzer, thinking person's guitar hero, and perhaps most strikingly, a one woman man. (laughs) He was sort of schizo or multi friendly. Yeah, but the the thing is, you know, absolutely. The trouble is, is when he stopped being schizo and basically defaulted to being a funk musician, is when he got really boring. It was actually the schizophrenia which made him really, really riveting, I think. I agree with that. Because he did, st- I mean, by the time he was doing things like Sexy MF and Get Off, and oh. it just felt to me like kind of rote funk by numbers. He just would fall out of bed into the studio and just start sort of jamming with himself mm. and, and he'd record it and it would come out as an album. And it, and it, there, there are just the odd kind of, I think great track like Diamonds and Pearls. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Great, yeah. Pretty decent pop yeah, record. Yeah. But, you know, I, it did feel he lost his way a little bit. Some, I was reading recently Alexis Petridis saying about Cream, which is from that like early 90s period. Yeah. And it basically sounds like T Rex, which I hadn't really thought before. He was a massive fan of T Rex. <laughs> it does. I listen to yeah. it and it's like, oh my God, this could be a T Rex song. It's great. I think, but I always thought Boland must have been an influence on. On Prince. First time I ever saw him play in New York in about 1981, that's what I was reminded of was seeing T Rex for the first right. time. Hmm. You know, I mean, obviously in a jock strap. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what Mark Bowler would have been doing if he was that age, though. <laughs> a glittery, a glittery, glittery jock Amazing with the you know the biggest artists in the world at the point the sign of the times came out were doing you know biggest you know some of the biggest commercial artists were doing things like this though you know in yeah. that, in that decade I think it's you know Madonna was somebody who spoke to me more you know even I you know, I found her a bit scary but I also just I loved the songs and there were always little there were always bits in Madonna's records that would reach out to younger girls like True Blue that was a bit safer and gentler and nostalgic and. But yeah, Prince. It took me. It took a while. I think it's just my very conservative Welsh background. <laughs> I love this sort of young dude being scared of Prince and Madonna. I think it's it's uh... no, I didn't <laughs> Kylie and Bross. I until I kind of saw the light. I still love Kylie, but not Bross. <laughs> <laughs> so the last of the free offerings on the homepage this week is is in our sort of obituary section, and we're saying goodbye to. The great Roy Head, who died this week. Now, Roy Head is not a household name, but he was one of the first really convincing sort of blue-eyed soul singers. And a white guy that came out of Texas into, you know, again, a family that probably just listened to country music, but was was later signed to the notorious Don Roby's backbeat label and sort of really promoted as, as a, a white soul guy. And we have a couple of pieces. One... 
Bill Miller writing in June 1966 wow. for Soul magazine here in the UK about Roy Head. And he's and he's all, he's sort of almost slightly reluctantly kind of saying, you know, this this guy, I mean, he, he uses the word Negro as was, you know, obviously common in Soul magazines of that era. And he sort of talks about about Roy Head being one of the most convincing, you know, white singers singing in a kind of <clears throat> Negro style. But it is, I mean, he had a huge hit with this record, Treat Her Right, yeah, yeah. which is, it still sounds pretty damn good. I mean, it's not as good, it's not Bobby Blue Bland, but it's it's pretty damn good. Do you, do you ever remember hearing that in this? Do you remember hearing that in the 60s? I don't think it was a hit here, Mark, but I mean, do you remember it? Actually, I mostly remember it when I was sharing that house with Martin Stone from Chili Will in the Red Hot Peppers okay. in, in the late 70s. That record was always on their turntable. I didn't, I probably didn't hear it at the time, but certainly it, it, was, it, was, it was a house hit for, for a good two or three yeah, years for yeah. me. I think like quite a lot of like blue-eyed soul guys from the, from the American South who, who sort of went to R&B, I think Roy Head then sort of went back to country music, which is a sort of fairly, no doubt, a Trump supporter now. I don't know, but <laughs> I just for treat her right and a number, and also he was an incredibly dynamic stage performer. He, he, he did this, developed this kind of wiggling, rubber-legged dance uh, moves. So he was, and he found it quite difficult to record because when he was in the vocal booth, he would be doing this dance. Yeah. And obviously the vocal was sort of panning from right to left. Anyway, we're it saying had a about life, though, that song, didn't it? You know, I've, I've heard covers of it, and Have you? it was. I remember it was on the commitments, you know, which I still uh, really loved. Was and, it? It was used in the commitments. Yeah, that it kind of. You know, I, I played because his name didn't kind of ring bells to me, and so I played. I played that, and I was like, God, yeah, I know this, and no. I had a little bit of a went down the wormhole last night, and this, yeah, so many people have covered it. It's a great song. <laughs> well, that's that's fantastic. I'd forgotten it was in that. She's gonna love you tonight now. If you just treat her right now, I'll squeeze her real gentle. Gotta make her feel good. Tell her that you love her like you know you should. It's time to talk about the the week's new audio interview, Mark. So I'm going to hand this over to you. Yeah, well, it's it's Martin Aston interviewing Sonic Youth in April 1986. It's all of them. If you actually choose to listen to the interview... Ronaldo's to the right, Kim is to the left, uh, Thurston's slightly too far back in the With middle. With the deepest the, voice, I think. Is he uh, the deepest uh, voice? Yes, yeah, slightly. It's interesting. Well, we can listen to a clip. I mean, they're quite, they're, they're, here they're talking about how they actually, what their name means, the meaning of sonic youth. <laughs> A sonic youth. I mean, I mean that's we're totally into sonics. We're into like sound exploration. Right. We're into like working with sound to its, to its fullest potential. Right. Yeah. I mean, we sort of made, have made so a like point a of being. Sorry, <laughs> like this. Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of sort of science fiction, but we're sort of like. Right. It has nothing to do with physical youth, kind of thing. Mm. It's more like. Fountain of Youth kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's an abstract. Yeah. 
they're very interesting about, I mean, Martin Aston sort of assumes that they kind of came out of hardcore. And they say, no, absolutely not. That actually their roots are probably in New York no-wave music. Mm. Which which does make some sense, especially when you see it in relation to the way that Thurston Mornow lives in London and is just a, involved in improvised music and so on and so mm. forth. Is, yes, is that, yes. that, that, that makes sense. They just deny ripping off the Stooges vehemently. <laughs> they talk about their methods, about refining accidents and, and, and the way in which... Uh, because, again, Martin is trying to pin down their methodology and they're kind of saying none of that's true, you know, is, is that we refine accidents and so on. So this next clip, is, it's all about the guitar as a weapon. It's, it's, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I mean, are you interested in the guitar as weapon sort of attitude? Uh, fighting off what? <laughs> I mean, who's, our, who's the enemy here? Right? Well, this sort of—I mean, like—I mean, I mean, there's been all these press comments about you, you know, that, that you're the uh, people who were sort of—we're uh, <laughs> the boys. Well, we and you're like sort of guitars. burying the corpse of like you know rock and roll in the not states. Not at all. We're not burying thing. the corpse. I mean, why would we bury the corpse of rock and roll? Well, not we don't consider it a corpse. I mean, we're, we don't have nothing. We no, consider that we carry forth the torch, <laughs> if anything, yeah. rather than bury the corpse. I mean, that's the whole thing about it. Compared to that long rider stuff, they're burying the corpse. I mean, they're just, <laughs> just like dancing on a dead thing. Or <laughs> they're like you dancing know. with the corpse. They're actually they're fantastically rude about because again Martin Aston sorts, uh, raises like the Paisley Underground bands and so on and so forth. They have no time for this sort of stuff whatsoever. They just see it as deeply reactionary music. We'll play a clip at the end of the thing about them covering "Getting to the Groove" by Madonna. Which, <laughs> That's a great clip. They're, they're convinced it, that Madonna is rock and roll, and they don't. Well, they don't absolutely. See it, absolutely. You know, and also that, that that even though they're a guitar band, they use drum machines and synthesizers on that cover. And again, Martin sort of challenged him, saying, "Why are you doing that? Isn't that sort of going against what you stand for?" I think, by his own admission, today Martin would probably say that he was a bit po-faced in this <laughs> interview. I think he sort of does. You say, as you say, has a sort of an idea of what Sonic Youth means. Yes, exactly. And of course, they bridle against that, as yeah. most acts do. You know, don't don't put put us in a sort of box. He also has a tendency to ask very complicated questions, and you can almost hear the pe- the band he's interviewing scratching their heads and trying to work out what the fuck mm. he's on about. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we've all done that. <laughs> I, I, I have some sympathy because I think interviewing four people is is it's hard. Intimidate. I mean, Jude, have you ever interviewed a whole band sitting yeah. around? It's really quite daunting and it's not particularly pleasant, is it? No. Band of Horses in LA in 2008. Oh, God. Yeah, they were just they were all joking with each other and, mess, yeah. you know, full guys. Oh, Jesus, just get on with it. Yes. I had to kind of tell them off, I think, at one point. Um, <laughs> See, the Thurston Moore and, um, you know, Sonic Youth and Madonna, he's talked about that in recent years, how, you know, Madonna was somebody they knew because she yes, lived in the Lower precisely. East Side and she was involved in No Wave fans, which is a part of Madonna's story that, I, I want. I always want to know more about. You know, yeah. she's. You know, because that, that she came from that 
grimy side of, you know, post, well, it wasn't even post CBGB's New York, was it? It's, <laughs> she was more in the, you know, involved in gay culture and yeah, clay clubs. Yeah, but I love the fact that Into the Groove cover's great. Well, yeah, it was such a departure for them, was it? I mean, did, did Sonic Youth mean anything to you in that era? And do they, what do they mean to you now, Jude? I kind of liked them in the early to mid-90s. I was a big Pixies and Breeders fan, and I loved the song they did with Kim Deal, Little Trouble Girl, Off Washing Machine, I yes. think. Yeah, they yes. were one of my favourites. Like, I was more into things that kind of span off R.E.M. around that time, because they were my American that, that was one of the focus of my American band love was is R.E.M. kind of late, you know, in utero over Nirvana, all that kind of stuff. I had a boyfriend who absolutely loved them and used to make them Sonic Youth tapes. So I kind of made some, yeah, it reminds me of teenage boyfriends. I did see them at Reading, 96. Mm-hmm. I think, did they play before the Stone Roses, the famous, terrible Stone Roses gig? I remember it was a Reading festival just over at my A-levels when, um, yeah. yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, when everybody in, Craziness. in the UK is legally obliged to go to either Reading to go to having finished. Yeah, there was no Glastonbury it. that year. There was no Glastonbury that year. So we had to go and see Ian Brown pretend to sing. And it was weird. I, I, I think I always liked the idea of them more than the actual noise they made. Because, I mean, I'd read interviews of them and they'd be talking about stuff that, you know, I got and I was interested in. And I listened to their records, and they just sounded a bit like just you know another rock and roll band a lot of the time. I don't think they're half as revolutionary as people claim they are. Well, you may be right. I mean, you, as you mentioned... You're about uh, to get a lot of angry comments, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thurston's been living in London now for, for quite a few years. He's, mm. he's sort of Stoke Newington fixture. You, you trip over him at Cafe Oto every time you go there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, or he trips over you. So it's yeah. like six foot five. He's and, a tall guy. <laughs> and he has a, he has a, a store there, a pop-up store called Ecstatic Peace, and he's publishing books. And, and he's releasing a new solo album, By the Fire, this week. He actually did a Guardian web chat last night with Laura Snapes, which was interesting to read. I mean, he's, he's a really interesting guy. You know, he's in some ways mm. one of those kind of sort of super intellectual fanboys who somehow, you know, ended up becoming a sort of legitimate star in his own right or kind of anti-star. There's a lot of music there, isn't there? I mean, there are so, the Sonic Youth have made a lot of albums. They no longer exist per se. But it's interesting hearing the interview. It's just after or just before the third album, Evil, comes out, I think, which was on SST. I mean, I associate them certainly at the beginning with, with the sort of hardcore. It was a hardcore slash post no wave slash industrial. I think I saw one of their first gigs in London and I wasn't really sure what to make of them, but they they become a kind of institution once they were signed to Geffen's label. And they toured with Neil Young and they became about, and they, and even there's an episode of the Simpsons with the Sonic, with Sonic youth in, in, in it. So they almost became household names. I don't know what you, what you, I mean, are you interested in that, in that whole sort of area of kind of avant-garde art rock? Jude? Me, I kind of, I have, my husband's a real big, he's basically Mr. Cafe Otto. Okay. Kind of, um, <laughs> even though we live... Even though you're there. in Monmouthshire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It's around the Welsh found borders. Cafe Otto's second branch in Monmouthshire. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised, yeah. like, the Welsh borders are this strange area where lots of musicians sort of go to... Mm you know, do their strange projects in their, you know, garages or whatever. There's a lot, I've met lots of really interesting people. And there's a really interesting scene in Hereford, which sounds nuts, but it'll be people doing quite experimental avant-garde mm. stuff, a bit older, you know. It's, there's some interesting bands around at the moment. 
which I, I did not expect. <laughs> I bet. But yeah, kind of, I'm, I'm more, yeah, kind of, I like my, I don't know, I like some art rock kind of stuff. And I like, I think I've always liked bands with ideas and stuff that are more on the more pop electronic side of things. That's just where I, I mm. gravitate towards generally. But um, yeah, I get exposed to a lot of, you know, free jazz at home. And some of it I think is great. And some of it, oh, Jesus, I just want to turn it off. <laughs> yeah yeah mark shall, shall we see whether we've got any of those sorts of pop acts with ideas in your library load this week almost certainly not but <laughs> the, 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 the first piece is lillian roxon to sunday morning herald in july 66 talking about psychedelic clubs in america the, the idea that you can get the psychedelic experience without actually taking lsd and she just names these various places one of the things she says she says one of the first people to exploit this was pop artist Andy Warhol, who last April decided to turn out something like like the Leary demonstration, that's Timothy Leary, and charge admission. He called it the plastic inevitable, served drinks, allowing people to dance while it was going on, and in doing so created the first psychedelic discotheque. The plastic inevitable was an enormous success. That's, of course, the home ground of the Velvet Underground. So that's kind of a nice kind of early mention of the, the exploding plastic inevitable. Beach Boy Bruce Johnson to Keith Oldham. He says, I've got some tapes at home of the new tracks to be on the Smile LP, which will blow your mind. This is 1967, an LP which never appeared at the time. John Fogerty to Roy Carr, Enemy 70. John Fogerty of Credence Clearwater Revival. He says, putting out a single is like having a baby four or five times a year. And an album is like having quads. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Elwood and San Francisco Zamlin seventy two interviewing Bill Withers. Bill Withers always does great interviews because he's mm. such a thoughtful guy. You know, there is nothing sadder than arriving at some kind of show business maturity that is nothing but external wealth. That's, you know, it's a pretty pretty mm. good thing to say. Mm. Two years ago, I hadn't even sung a demonstration tape. Now I've played Carnegie Hall. Two years more, I might be out of it. Who knows? And. You know, sure enough, he did sort of more or less walk mm. away. Barry came with the Sex Pistols record mirror in 1978 in America. And he's just, he, he's, he's fairly present here. So Sid's a rock and roll casualty and he ain't even dead yet. The sword of Damocles looms ominously above his malignant skull. Count the days. Yeah. Oh, no. Actually, a rather good Toby Goldstein for Cream interviewing Judas Priest, which, I mean, you know, they're a daft mob, aren't they? And Rob Holford says, we're thinking of putting a backwards message on this album, and what it was really going to say was, drink a lot of milk. I've met <laughs> this week, just to so much. Because, of course, Judas Priest were the ones who fell foul of the whole sort of anti-satanic oh, yeah. movement, you know, all these sort of concerned parents who are con- yes. in the run-out grooves of vinyl that- albums for instructions to sell your soul to Satan. Chris Heath interviewing Wet, Wet, Wet for smash hits in March 88. Oh. Now, this is March 88, and actually they're already on the slide by then, aren't they, I think? You know, the, the, Ooh, no, but they are... no, I don't think so. This is my period. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the president of the Mars. Yeah, I was never a fan of Hello, that. Fan. I was a bros girl, but yeah. I, 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 I mean... I, they're, they're extreme. They're so cocky and just unbearable. And uh, Martin, <laughs> Martin's saying there's no individuality in music at the moment. If you listen to a wet, wet album, there are so many different colours, so many different entities, so much depth. Oh. There are nights and days. 
It was just makes you want to chuck up. This is the guy who later appeared in the West End production of Chicago because he didn't really have anything else going on in his life. The last piece is is Pete Perfides is sent to review and also kind of do a a kind of report on Elastica for the Melody Maker in January 94. Now, he points out this thing is that basically Elastica were entirely anti-Melody Maker because they had such connections with, well, particularly Steve Lamarck, who's, you know, NME journalist mm. at the time. So he gets rumbled as being there from Melody Maker. He says, I sidle off to the reception area after Elastica's final song in order to conduct a few Vox Pop interviews with fans. At this point, I begin to sense a little hostility. Steve Mac is standing two feet to the left of me. Members of the band are dotted all around me. And our rate-looking promoters stomping in my general direction. And a colossal shadow of collapsed lung man, collapsed lung being a band, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, um, yes. has just thrown all of us into darkness. He looks at me accusingly. I collect my stuff, pack my dictaphone into my bag, and get the fuck out of there. Which is terrific. So that's, that's my lot. Who's next? Right. Well, I want to mention a couple of things over the sort of ensuing years. One actually is a piece that was originally written for our blog section that we, we killed a few years ago. But Richard Regal writing about Louise Christiani. And it's just really nice writer, so writing about another writer. Yeah. Having discovered her, all the amazing KRLA beat stuff, Mark, that you added. And he didn't really know much about her at that point. So he sent me an email yesterday because he had seen it in his list of his articles on, on the site. He didn't know that we were running it. And yeah. he's, he's really pleased that we ran Yeah, well, so, so when, we, when we killed the blogs, I did make sure to extract all the worthwhile pieces that were written for the blogs, as it were, by people like Richard. And slowly but surely, they do make their way into the library, and that was yeah. a particularly nice thing to be able to add. Jasper, what about you? I've got a couple of things to mention, starting with a piece about Kim Weston by Lois Wilson in Record Collector magazine. And it's a really nice interview with Kim Weston. Classic story started in gospel music with, I think, a group called the Christianaires, which is <laughs> a hilarious name for a group. But so, and it's just a nice interview. I mean, she, she, I think she's always been bigger in the UK than in her native America, but she did have a, a big hit with Marvin Gaye right after she left Motown and then sort mm. of realised maybe, oh, maybe she shouldn't have left her. She's very interesting about working with Marvin. We never got to pick any of the songs. It was so frustrating. Marvin and I would rehearse the LP together, and that was when I saw an ability in Marvin, which I'd not seen before. I heard the frustration in his voice. At that time, artists at Motown were not allowed to do their own production, and he said, I'm better than most of the producers here. It was difficult because we did not have creative control, which you know is a story that's since been told, but I think it is always interesting to hear that as Marvin Gaye, being straightjacketed by Motown and not allowed to do what he wanted to do. So that obviously did change with, with what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Where, I mean, I think it's fair to say probably Mark, he did have, he did yeah, have, I, th- I think, but I'm, maybe but, not total creative control. Well, you know, he, he pretty much did. And that was the thing is he basically made the album regardless of what Barry Gordy wanted exactly. or didn't want. And at first, Barry Gordy didn't want to put it out. 
you know, I mean, it may never have seen the light of day. And I think it was other people at Motown who basically kind of said, look, this, for this, yes. this, this has got to go out. Yeah. But also Lois asked her about being the first female Motown artist to perform on UK soil. And she tells a funny story of being in, you know, getting picked up from the airport and everyone was going, why are you so calm? Because she'd always says she's always been taught as a child to be cool and calm. And they're saying to me, why aren't you showing any excitement or enthusiasm? But on the way from the airport to the hotel, I threw up over everyone in the cab. Was that enough excitement for you? I asked him. <laughs> was that was she part of a, Mo- a Motown tour, or was it just her coming over independently? I think it was a Motown tour. I think it that, was. If it, if it was the first one, it was the one that one of our writers, Barney, remind me, who was the founder of the Motown fan club in England. Oh yeah, Dave Godin. That's right. Dave he Godin? he 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 put, wrote it, he, he, put he, it well, he, no, he put it together, and they mm. played to half empty halls. It was a yes. disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what else? Next up. John Lewis interviews Salt and Pepper for Hotline Magazine in August 2010. And oh, I love Salt and Pepper. Pepper. Mm, They're yeah. just great. And the interview. I sprinkle them on everything. <laughs> Go on. It must feel odd, suggests John Lewis, being referred to by their teenage stage names. Pep's fine with me, says Pepper, a.k.a. Sandra Denton. Everyone calls me Pep, but Salt has always been a Cheryl. (laughs) And Cheryl agrees. We're so totally opposite. Pep's the outrageous one. You'll always find Pep out partying with her celebrity friends like Queen Latifah and Missy Elliott. I'm the stay-at-home conservative one. My friends are the down-home, round-the-way girls from my local church. That's brilliant. Tell me, is this true or not? But Spinderella, their DJ, has actually been different women at different times, but always called Spinderella. I, is that true? Oh, I don't, don't ruin know. my childhood. Don't ruin it for, for June. I thought, I, thought, I thought Spinderella was a DJ Spinderella, but I, I don't know. Mm, I thought there was only one. Yeah, oh, gosh, the mystery. I, those are, that, the first record of theirs, my, my six-year-old had push it on the radio about a year ago and got obsessed with it. And, you know, I can't, don't really want to explain the lyrics to him. To, to <laughs> him. Um, well, it's just this classic, because my, my, my then sort of five or six-year-old niece, I remember stomping up and down the stairs of her parents' house, singing, let's talk about sex at the top of her voice. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely superb. Lastly, I just want to mention an interview with Max Rabe, who is a German sort of, this is Stephen Dalton, this this year talks to him, and this was just before he was going to do his first UK tour in March. I don't think that happened. I don't know why. But uh, he's actually a really interesting story because he's a classically trained opera singer who then started doing like Berlin cabaret 20s, 30s stuff under an alias, which has sort of become his main his main gig as being Max Rabe. And it's very funny. He has this very sort of high voice, but he's he's done all kinds of slightly weird things you wouldn't expect. Like he played at Marilyn Manson's wedding when Marilyn Manson got married to Dieter von Tees. So it's sort of he's he's moving in all these slightly strange circles and his music has a tendency to be quite funny because of his delivery. And I've played it previously in the office and it's so odd as a sound to be released now just the, the way that he sings and delivery kind of reviving this Berlin cabaret feel it's I, I think he's really interesting and sort of well worth watching I think he's just about sort of breaking through into into British musical surround what a difference a day made 24 little hours 
brought the sun and the flowers where they used to be right. Jude, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Live from Monmouthshire. It's been such a joy speaking with you. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with Midge Year, special guest Midge Year, talking mainly, of course, about slick. (laughs) 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 But uh, in the interim, it is, we're going to go out with the third and final clip from the Sonic Youth interview, Mark. Yeah, which is about them covering Madonna. It's, It's very amusing. Great. So we'll say goodbye. Take care. Lovely to see you all. Bye. 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 We just did a verse for the the Madonna. That's coming out of single. Why? Why? Because we love her. (laughs) Uh, That song, too. (laughs) Yeah, the song is great, and we're total fans of her. We do like a real. It's real different than anything ever did because it's real sort of um, drum programs and synthesizers and, and uh, like hip hop beats. A lot of synthesizers. Yeah. Why? I mean, like, why? I mean, this is. Why not? I mean, it's there. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's appropriate. But hold on a moment. This is entering a different. I mean, you're saying that you are a rock and roll band. Yeah. Like, this is your sort of. It's Madonna. Destiny. Madonna is a rock and roll band. That was Sonic Youth in conversation with Martin Aston in 1986, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jude Rogers. Visit her website at juderogers.com. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. And I have this, my book on print. Ah. Imp of the Perverse. I had to explain that title, Jude, to Prince, the only time I ever interviewed him. I'll leave the rest to your imagination. <laughs> I think I was reduced to saying, blame Edgar Allan Poe. It's not my fault. <laughs>